welcome to High Action. I'm Perry Smith. I'm Will Brom. I'm John Story, and together we're the New West Guitar Group. On today's episode of High Action, we're going to feature John Pisano. A special thanks to our Patreon members and our sponsors who make this podcast possible. For more information on High Action and how you can get involved, please visit www.newwestguitar.com slash highaction. Welcome, everybody, to episode 17 of the High Action Podcast. I'm John Story, joined by my cohorts in the New West Guitar Group, Perry Smith and Will Brom. Today's a very special episode for us. In fact, it marks a series of two episodes, part one and part two, featuring the great John Pisano. How about it, you guys? Can you believe we got John on our podcast? Yeah, so cool. He's a legend, and for the listeners who are learning about all of these players that we've featured thus far in these episodes, um, we can all start to piece together a bit of a lineage of jazz guitar and this giant family tree that we all kind of belong to a little bit. And John is definitely a part of the trunk. I mean, he's somebody that he, he was gigging before World War II. Let's think about that for a minute. And for those of us who know our guitar history, you know, Les Paul with the log and Ted McCarty, they were developing the electric guitar at Gibson in 1939, 1938, somewhere in there. And then the war happened and that delayed the efforts to get that guitar out. And so John had an Epiphone that his dad had given him and it was barely starting to be electrified. I mean, imagine being a gigging guitar player and the electric guitar is as brand new as like, Ableton is right now. It's amazing. And, you know, to Pisano's credit, he was getting a great tone from the jump. You know, uh, some of the recordings that we're playing, which are like early 50s, he's getting a deep tone on those things. It's true. I mean, and it it makes us think like, I know, Will, we've talked a lot about on the road with, with all the stuff that you do with pedals and effects. It's like the expansion of the sound of the electric guitar. And yet you listen to him on these early recordings with these dance bands, basically, which you can find if you, if you look hard enough, you can find these recordings. I mean, his tone, like you said, Perry too, his tone was just born out of nothing. And it's so great and warm, right? You know, the player, it's, it's the player, not the guitar. Right. And that, that can shine through, but I mean, being, being present for that type of evolution is especially um, unique as opposed to now things evolve every week. But then, I mean, that was like a jump from the, the <laughs> proverbial dark ages to amplification. Yeah. You know? yeah. Wild. And it just shows you we're still in the evolution of the guitar. I mean, I, I feel like we're kind of in a renaissance of pedals and the way that guitar interfaces with the digital technology and the digital audio workstations. I mean, we are really in a renaissance with that. But John was there from the beginning, not just with the evolution of the guitar, but jazz. I mean, we think about you're coming basically into the swing era, you know, which is amazing. You know, he was playing when the swing era was basically starting, right? And then into bebop, into hard bop and He's then the whole evolution the whole thing the whole thing i mean uh he is somebody who 
has more stories to tell than even he realizes. I mean, that's what, what was so fun about this interview. I know, Perry, you talked a lot about like preparing a lot for this interview too and like really thinking about like what to ask him and how to ask him his story. Yeah, because it is deep, you know, he's almost 90 years old. And so just speaking to him, it's sort of a different vibe than some of the younger guests that we've had because he's got a lot in the Rolodex. He's got to sort through right. a lot of stories and a lot of history that, that he wanted to get out to us. And to his credit, he's pretty sharp for his age still, you know, <laughs> and he's always been really generous with the three of us, you know, whether it was the interactions we've had with him at Guitar Night in LA, private lessons, and just the sort of the feeling of a mentor like him for the three of us. I know has meant a lot. One of the things that really stands out to me about Pisano, though, is just his role as an accompanist mm -hmm. on the guitar. You know, I think often we talk about the guys that were more fronting the bandstand, you know, uh, Les Pauls of that era, you know, Django, and obviously Joe Pass. Some of the listeners may not know that Pisano is recorded on uh, for Django with Joe Pass, which is probably one of Joe Pass's greatest recordings. And you have to give credit to John Pisano for the accompaniment that he laid down to allow that space for Joe Pass um, and that landscape for Joe Pass to play like that. I mean, he had, what does Ron Eshte say, that Joe Pass had an angel on his shoulder when he, he recorded that? an angel on his shoulder that day. Yeah. 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 I mean, I still Maybe listen that to that album, and I think that's John. Like he, and here he is, like, it's so wild. Yeah. Yeah. He was playing on that record and, you know, maybe, maybe he helped Joe Pass get to that level that day. So, uh, that's just one of his many credits. So, right. um, right. Pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah. And in the first part today, we're going to learn a lot about John's backstory and we don't want to give anything really away to everybody, but it's, it's pretty exciting to hear how he starts about his early career. And we, we did some digging and, and asked him some fun questions. So I think we should dig right into this episode and get the listeners firsthand uh, to get to hear John talk about his background and uh, everything that brought him to this music to get going. Does that sound good, you guys? Should we get going? Sounds yes. Good. Yeah. All right. Well, here we go. Episode 17 of the High Action Podcast, part one, the maestro himself, John Pisano. caught me while i was trying to learn all the things you are hey don't stop don't stop <laughs> forgot it I tried to play yesterday uh so where are we all now are we all in los angeles or will and i are right down the hill from you john in our places i'm in burbank and will's in north hollywood and perry is all right. way out in bay ridge yeah how you doing today john i'm doing great Oh, man. It's just great to see you and know that you're just up there, up the hill from uh, Will and I. I. I imagine you working in your garden these days and, and doing a lot of stuff outdoors. But also, knowing you, John, you're probably practicing uh, 24 hours a day right now or something. How much have you been practicing more, recently? More like uh, 
20, 24 minutes a day. You know? <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, since the pandemic, it's been kind of weird. The first couple of months, I hardly picked the guitar up at all. You know, mm-hmm. I, I didn't. I just didn't have the desire. I mean, and and as of late, lately, uh, I'm getting I'm getting ready for school, so I have to kind of prepare myself and you know with, with my students get my shit together for those who are checking out the podcast john's talking about northridge right you're over at cal state northridge yeah that's great man how long have you been in that teaching appointment now uh at northridge god i think it's been about 12 years or more and then prior to that i was at uh, at valley valley college for uh, like eight years or more and uh you know i did a lot of great things at valley college i actually had Ted Green came in and did workshops with me, and, and Joe Pass came in and did two with him, you know. And uh, these guys were just, they, were, they, they weren't even being paid for it. They just came in as a favor. And it was, and we had, we had uh, I video, I didn't videotape, but I audio taped. Uh, I have them on tape. And, and some great questions and some great answers, especially by Joe. You know, Joe, Joe was he was hysterical you know <laughs> guys our age can only imagine what that hang must have been like and you know we we're so lucky we get to get that with you john all the times we hang with you it's we feel like we're really learning um so much about how to about the instrument you know you're such a fine guitar player you have such a beautiful sound and your approach to playing jazz too is so spirited and interactive i love when i get to play a tune with you it's you always feel like you're being accompanied in such a supportive but yet interactive way it's just like having a conversation with an old friend of yours you know so it's this is an honor to have you on our podcast today john well that's that's my main thing i mean i i do that just because i do that it's natural for me i've never been one that i don't, i never want to be like up front and do all the stuff you know i mean I, I i was always kind of in the background and uh you know when i was with herb albert and we would do specials, and my mother used to complain. She said, oh, Johnny, she said, how come you're always in the background? And I said, well, you know, I know why I was in the background, because I, I would hate the makeup, and I would wait until they didn't have any time, and they could just, like, dab me and then put me in the back. You know? <laughs> but, but that's generally the way I am, and, and I, I do that, if the word is inherently, I, I, I I I, uh, I thrive and I, I work well in that connection, you know. Looking at some of the pictures, John, that I've found of you over the years, it's interesting seeing you on the bandstand with various groups. I love the pictures back in 46, 47 when you're 15, 16, playing in the Cat Big Band in New York, and you're playing that old Epiphone. Was that a guitar that your dad had given you? Was it, uh, it, it wasn't a, an expensive-looking guitar. It looked like a tri- Epiphone Triumph, or um, and, and it had a de-armand pickup on it. Yeah, the, the, I had uh, t- my first two guitars were Epiphones, and the, one was a Triumph, and it was a little, a little more elaborate. Yeah, they're great instruments. One of the questions I wanted to start today talking about in this interview, in your early years as a youngster in New York, before you were in the Air Force, before, of course, you moved to L.A. after that, but you were experimenting with electrifying that instrument. You had that D-Arm and pickup. I'm really curious, were you 
um, excited about playing electric guitar in that situation because, again, in the 40s and the 50s, electric guitar was really growing into its own and it was a new instrument that could compete with the horns on the bandstand. Were you yeah. satisfied with the sound you were getting or did you feel like there were things about it that were still kind of like rickety and not giving you the sound you wanted at that time? Well, um, there was always a problem with the determined pickup, or at least I had that problem that the uh, the evenness of it, you know, the, the, the B string was always too loud, you know, and always those kind of things. You know, I was always tinkering around trying to eliminate the things that I considered a problem. But generally, you could only go so far with it. You know, you didn't have any any pedals or any other devices. You just had that guitar, acoustic guitar, and, and that the pickup strapped to it, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, the, the placement. And then when they started building, uh, uh, putting pickups built in the guitar, uh, they were using different different locations. Like some companies had the, the they, they first started with, uh, I think, Epiphone. They, they would put the pickup someplace between the bridge and the end, of, uh, you know, and it was always moving things around. Right. But... Uh, uh, all in all, I guess I was satisfied with the sound. It was doing, you know, uh, I, I was heard a little more, you know, the notes I was playing. But I've always, I've always worked on uh, basically. See, I love the guitar. I love the, the the basic sound of the guitar, the acoustic, the the, the romance I've had with that sound, right. and uh, goes back to before I played guitar. Oh, I, I can tell you the story again because it's it's kind of interesting. I just did. Uh, uh, I've been I've been doing uh, a chord book, uh, uh, chord movements and stuff with a, a company in England, and uh, and I gave them a bunch of dates. But I, my first recollection of the sound of the instrument, and this is uh, long before I was probably maybe. 10 11 or even younger than that but there was a there was a, a show a regular show on 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 the i don't know if you read about this it was in some of the and it was blondie the blondie show it was a blondie and dagwood bumpstead that was the show so they would have they had uh, uh like sunday night was a night they had all of the all of the hip programs and the family will you know you'd be sitting like I'd be on the floor near the speaker, and I could I I I, I couldn't wait to hear the theme song on Monday because there was a little string quartet played a, a little uh, a little uh, couple of bars, and then there was a, a a break, and there was a a two a two bar guitar break acoustic, and uh, it was uh, just a beautiful thing. In fact, if any of you are in or interested, if you go on. Uh, you know, online and just put in the Blondie show and they they have all of the shows and recently I, I turned these people onto it. They actually have maybe a couple of dozen shows and you can hear that actual guitar break. It sounded to me later on, uh, I had heard some later on in years, I always assumed it was, it was uh, uh, Van Epps. And uh, Later on, when I finally connected with with George, 
uh, one day I asked him about the show, whether, you know, and I to tell him that I listened to it. And, and you know how George was? He said, well, John, you know, that wasn't actually me playing. And he said, but I wrote the part, you know. And, and he, and he had, there was a, whoever the guitarist was on the show, he would play it the same every week, you know. And it was just this little chord thing. And that, and that was one of the first things. And the other, the other thing, as far as the sound of rhythms and strings goes back to uh, Carmen Miranda and, and the Bando, Bando Carioca. And that's where my, my love for the Brazilian music uh, comes in because I remember that so well. They were in in a lot of the Disney pictures. You know, you've probably seen it from time. And Jose Carioca was uh, the, the Cavaquinho guy, and they had they had the real authentic sound happening there. And that was that was a very intriguing to me that rhythm. So those two things I, I hung on to. You know, the guitar, the rhythms, and uh, and kind of went that direction. Right. And you know, for those who are listening too, so Blondie would have been on, this was a radio program, John, right? Not a TV show, radio yeah. program. And yeah. those were all done live. So there was a live orchestra, a live performer. And that's, if you notice, that's why you said every week you'd listen and you'd yeah. hear it being played the same, but a little different. So did, yeah. as a youngster, did that give you a, like you, you said that just really lit you up and you wanted to play guitar like that. Did you also have a desire of like someday being on a radio show and playing guitar like that? No, never. And it wasn't playing like that. It was just the love of that sound, that acoustic sound, you know, mm -hmm. the chord playing. And that, that, uh, that, that sticks out most of all of it. And it's funny, too, I'm, after all these years, the passion that all of us can talk about the first time we really fell in love with guitar or jazz guitar specifically and how that it sticks with us so hard. For me, it was hearing George Benson and... And so going on too, John, this is great to know this lineage and this timeline about hearing the guitar. And and I'd love to ask you a little bit about some years that seem to really develop in your playing, particularly when you joined the Air Force Band um, and you were in, stationed in D.C., um, and, and at that time you were studying with Charlie Bird as well, who was a student of Segovia's. So I'm just curious would, if you'd like to share about how those years might have been formative for you with sight reading and playing in other styles and studying with Charlie, um, because I find that to be really interest, an interesting time, the early 50s, especially for jazz, of course, in the country, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I could, uh, you know, we can cover all of that. And, uh, you, know, you know where I'm at. After, of course, after uh, initially the, the sound of the guitar, and and then immediately uh, next year I discovered Django Reinhardt, you know, and and then he was that was my big influence. In fact, everybody started. I had a nickname. They called me Django. You know. <laughs> anyway. Did you enjoy playing in the Air Force bands? And a lot of guys talked about how great of a gig that was. Uh, in those days, there was there was not there was no authorization. There was one authorization for guitar in the whole Air Force, and uh, I I got into a band pretty quickly through the help of some friends that were set me up. And I was in Detroit, Michigan, uh, Selfridge Air Force Base, and. Uh, 
playing bass, playing bass drum. I was great. I was like the Freddie Green of the, the marching band. I, mean, I wouldn't let those suckers rush, man. I, I held that, that, that you know, that the, the, you know, the, the pulse stayed there, you know. And, and you'd always get these people trying to push I'd hold them back, just like Freddie could, you know, in the band. You know, he held the whole band in place, you know. Uh, but uh, but up until then, uh, and I did gigs playing the guitar, but but I could never get a rating. I could never get like a pay raise, and so no stripes. Um, I heard about uh, the fact that they were auditioning uh, people for the only guitar chair in the whole Air Force, you know. And I and I I got to uh, I got down to uh, Washington D.C. and auditioned, and and I got the gig. So I spent. Literally, the last uh, I was in for I was in the Air Force for four years. You had to join for four years at that time, and uh, and that was where uh, I really got my education. Because prior to that, I was playing Italian weddings and stuff like that, you know, uh, uh, and not really doing very much in the city. Uh, I started to get a couple of little gigs, but I I I I went into the Air Force one was 21 right and so because of your draft card, well it's not a draft card excuse me because of we're in the service were, were you also able to go back home to new york and go into a lot of the clubs too and were you going i was yeah i i yeah i was able to uh, you know zip up the you know from washington uh, drive up and and have uh, weekends or whatever you know it was pretty uh it was really cool there because immediately when i when they moved me there uh i suddenly had uh three stripes on my arm you know i was you know and i was making some i was making good bread in those days i mean the pay for the pay for the staff sergeant Mm -hmm. rank i would get like 350 bucks a month and then since they didn't really have rations and quarters they call them like you know I lived off uh, lived off base, and they give you another three hundred and fifty bucks to, <laughs> to to take care of yourself. So I was already ahead, and playing at officers' clubs and making extra money. So I was doing a lot better than I am now. <laughs> 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 and that was a lot of money, a lot of money in those days. You know? Right, and so that puts us at about fifty six. 57 you were going back to per, to perhaps study a degree at Manhattan uh, School of Music and that was when and did you also study at City College around that time in New York before you moved out to Los Angeles? No, no I had I never connected I uh, my first decision was to move uh, when I got out of the services go back to New York and, and go to college and figure out uh, what music was you know uh, although I, I did get an education working with the, the group was called the Crew Chiefs, and it was a, a, a six six piece group, and uh, we, we had great musicians on it. And, and uh, uh, George Romanus was a bass player. He, he did uh, a lot of arranging. Actually, when he got out, he was in uh, in Los Angeles, uh, but. Uh, there was uh, there was George uh, Ron, Ronnie Odrich, a clarinet player, who was like 
he played like Buddy DeFranco. I mean, they're really high quality musicians. And I had a chance to work alongside them and really mature musically, mm-hmm. you know. And we, we would do uh, air shots, like radio, you know, join, join, join the Air Force and, mm-hmm. and see the world and that kind of stuff. We had like a 15-minute regular program, which you do every week. And then we toured around. We had our own, own plane. And we would go to different areas and do concerts. And then... Uh, then actually fly us around to, uh, we went to Bermuda twice a year to play to the officers clubs. And it was a, it was great. It was like a gig, you know? Right. And this is before the interstate highway system in the United States too. So you guys, if you were traveling, did you guys travel by bus at all too? Or they flew, they flew you guys. No, no, we had, we had the plane. If we had to go to from state to state, they would always, you know, we would, fly to an, uh, the, the local uh, airstrip or whatever mm-hmm. and it was just it wasn't a big plane it was a you know like a, you know, a c-47 or something sure. you get yeah. gentle people and instruments and and so we did that traveling and we used the same the same goddamn plane as primitive as a two-engine prop plane and uh, one of the last uh, one of the gigs I did was the Bob Hope show in 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 Thule, Greenland, and we went up there with a a troop of uh, like what, about four planes, and flew up there in this little to and, and landed. It was like six hundred miles from the North Pole, you know, and then um, get off the plane real quick and then go underground where they lived, you know. Because they, everything was under the ground there. Wow! And, and it was forty below zero. I remember we got there, and you couldn't stay out. You couldn't stay outside. But it was in December, and it was at noon. You could hardly see a glow in the sky. You know? So, some great, you know, experiences. You know. This episode of High Action is brought to you by Jeff Traugott Guitars. Jeff Traugott is an amazing luthier. He's based in Santa Cruz, California. New West has a long history with Jeff. We've performed on his instruments for almost 15 years now, in particular models like the R and the BK. Jeff's instruments are amongst the finest in the world for flat-top acoustic guitars. Uh, Chris Martin of Martin Guitars says, Builders like Jeff have helped raise the standards of our craft to the highest levels ever. So for more information on how you can find one of his instruments or to check out his current offerings, visit TragotGuitars.com. Um, were you playing your? Were you still playing your Epiphone, or did you have a guitar that John D'Angelico had made for you at that point? Uh, well, actually, I uh, I was playing not not the one of those early Epiphones. Uh, I when I went into the service, I had a third Epiphone, which was the uh, the first ply ply top. That was like in the '40s. They came up with a I forget what the name of it, it was, a, but it was an Epiphone, and that, that they were they were fine. I still have it up in my it's like right up in the closet there you know wow. it's it's kind of all torn up and you know i did all kinds of uh experiments with it right and one day i'm gonna uh i'm just talking about like 
it, it had interesting the ply top was very unlike the 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 thickness the thickness was a little heavier you know a little more than five millimeters uh but there were five layers that were a, a millimeter thick each and they were you know anyway i have i i did a lot of research developing you know the eastman guitar and i have i have pictures of all of those old guitars and i would take uh take a shot of the of the veneer and blow it up in the computer so it was like this big. <laughs> that helps when you do a gig in Greenland and it's minus 40 degrees outside to have a five-ply top yeah. guitar. You must have called up the Epiphone Corporation, which back then was not a part of Gibson. It was a competitor to Gibson and said, hey, you know, this guitar does well in 40 below weather and stays in tune, right? <laughs> well, you know, speaking of the two companies, actually Epiphone was was a, 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 a much hipper company. They were, they were much better than Gibson. Gibson, mm-hmm. uh, their precision, uh, uh, and, and they were in, in Manhattan. Uh, they had an office. I remember I went there a couple of times. One time, I when I was in the service, I I, I dropped the guitar and the neck went haywire. So I, when I got back to New York, I I, I left it with them, and they uh, they straightened the neck out. And I remember the day I picked it up. And played the thing. It was like butter. They whatever they did to the neck, it was just perfect. You know, I was so excited. Well, that and so that's interesting. And and of course, John D'Angelico was building at that time on Kenmar Street in New York. Um, yeah. Did you did you meet John D'Angelico around this time? Um, I'm I'm just yeah. so curious about that time frame. Of course, before you you come out to Los Angeles, uh, I met him probably maybe mid 40s in the mid 40s, and. Uh, because my dad, my dad, uh, as you know, you mentioned, I, I still have his guitar, which is uh, Epiphone Deluxe. Uh, anyway, uh, every almost every weekend, my dad would would explore. You know, uh, he he loved to like look at guitars and stuff. So, and I was always with him. And I, I remember there was a Kenmare Street on, in New York. I don't know if it still exists, but that there were a whole several blocks of, of uh, pawns, pawn shops. And in each window, you could look in the, the wall full of guitars, like you would see D'Angelico's and all these greatest. And, and you know, we would we would just go in and, and check out all these guitars and spend the whole day, you know. So he enjoyed that and kind of, I, I, I picked up the bug. Yeah. <laughs> and then he would, uh, he took me up to uh, D'Angelico's and and he uh, he introduced me to John, and, and actually John did some work on his guitar, and and John got to uh, he you know if I walked in the shop he recognized me he liked me you know, and uh, and through the years when he was still alive I had a lot of stuff done. Uh, I always tell the great story about uh, I don't know if you you might have read this in one of the things that recently. Uh, in one of the interviews, but it's it's a great story. And I was playing the D'Angelico at that time with because uh, I got the D'Angelico that he made for me was in 1953, and uh, I was using that with Chico. Uh, and I don't know if you heard the early albums that did when Jim Hall played, and they were very intricate musically. 
uh, I mean, it wasn't just a typical guitar thing. The guitar was like another instrument. The music was not particularly jazz, but it was very classical and all these lines interweaving and everything. So the, I, I just remember I bought I bought a, an AS-175, which I really liked. Uh, I had I didn't, you know, I had, didn't have a chance to use it much, but I suddenly realized that I like the jazz sound much better than the D'Angelico. You know, the D'Angelico just had, uh, at the time, I don't know what pickup we was using, but, but uh, the D'Angelico, uh, I, I love the sound of the 175, and I brought it into John D'Angelico, you know, and uh, I thought about an, an ebony fingerboard, you know, yeah. to, to get more of the sound, the clarity that I needed, you know, even though the guitar is great. And and I, I can still, if I close my eyes, I can visualize, like, we're, we're at the counter or whatever, you know, and I, I can picture him holding this Gibson in front of him. And so he's listening to me, you know, he's, he's a sweet guy. He's listening to me. And, and all of a sudden he looks at me and he said, what do you want this piece of shit for anyway? His <laughs> 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 exact words, you know. Like and and he, said, he said, John, I'll do it for you. He said, don't worry about it. It took a year, you know, every time I'd call him, he'd say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm working on that. And then by the end of the year, and I was leaving Kiko's group, I called him and said, hey, John, I want to get that guitar. Is Oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. But I'm leaving. I'm not going to be coming back to New York every other week. You know? Oh, my gosh. And, uh, so he did. Uh, he, he, he finished it. He finished it on a. Easter Sunday morning, he set this up because his shop was always so crowded with people coming in, you know, guys, he'd be in the middle of doing some work building and, and, uh, like Johnny Smith would come in or one of the studio guys and say, Hey, John, I have this date. Could you change my strings? Wide? Oh, sure. You know, and he, he changed his strings or whatever. So he never really, he said, why don't you do this? He said, Easter morning, I can't remember exactly what year it was. He said, "Could you come in to the shop about like, you know, noon?" And he said, "I'll start working on it. I'll have it done." So I, I went up there, and he was still leveling the frets, and and so I, you know, hung out for a couple of hours, and he finished it, and that, that's when I got it. And uh, wow! Uh, then uh, after that, I did use it. Uh, with, with Chico, it made the difference. And Let's talk a little bit about moving to L.A. and Chico and that sound. Of course, Jim Hall had been playing with him, and Jim was playing a Les Paul before, back then with Chico, that black one. Yeah, that, that's right. He was playing a Les Paul. Yeah, we've got a clip, John, that we'd love the listeners to check out. It's such a fantastic clip of you playing in this setting. This is the Duke Ellington uh, Suite album with Eric Dolphy, of course, oh, okay. on flute. I love how you're playing in a in a block chord style. It's very clear that you'd played in a lot of big bands because you're getting a really cool shout chorus kind of sound. And um, uh, this is 1958 when this is recorded. I was looking it up for sure. So let's take a listen to uh, In a Mellow Tone, okay? Okay. 
that's so burning, John. What is it? What is it like to listen back to to recordings of that time? I could actually play some of those fast moves, <laughs> cleaner, you know, uh, little ten stuff. Yeah. But, what 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 was the vibe like in the studio with Dolphy and Chico? Of course, Chico Hamilton, the great drummer, um, iconic West Coast jazz figure. But do- how cool to be around Dolphy, man! I mean, especially at this time. Yeah, I, I worked with uh, I worked with uh, with Eric on the band for about eight months. You know, and uh, we we traveled together. Uh, he was always practicing, you know, wherever you were, you, you know, in the hotel, you'd hear him practicing all this shit. You know? yeah, was he practicing bass, wow. clarinet or flute or any particular instrument? Uh, yeah, he was practicing. He, it was like he, he was like a, a kid with all his instruments. Actually, he didn't. If you notice, his intonation wasn't the greatest and he didn't pay much attention to it anyway. It didn't make much difference, I guess. But but the fact is, I don't know if you realize, this album was was not this was rejected initially. Did you know that story? I, a little bit. I was curious if you would mention that actually. Well, they, um, the first album, this album, uh, Dick Bach wasn't happy with the intonation, and there was a definite problem. You can hear some of the notes, you know, and so they actually redid the album using. Uh, a lot of the original guys. I might have played on that too. I don't know if Jim was uh, Jim Hall was there. I don't. Uh, um, but there was an, they did another uh, of of the uh, Duke Ellington. I don't have a copy of it, but it it, it was released later. Uh, you know, uh, maybe a couple of years later. And uh, this was just never released for years. Went by and and. Somehow somebody found a copy of it in, I hear the story in England someplace, and it, it was being thrown out, and uh, it suddenly surfaced. And, and by then, Eric's uh, popularity is playing people, and they say, wow, Eric Dolphy in, in, in this year. And, and, they, and it was released by another company. Right, and it was released by, was it released by Pacific Jazz? No, um, it was the- I don't think it's on, I, it, it originally... It was supposed to be, but uh, Dick uh, didn't, didn't want to release because he didn't like the intonation. Interesting and, how record labels are, you know, like that, too, and that some things get put away. It was great. And at the time, at the time I agreed with him because, you know, the music that we were playing required precision and intonation. And, you know, when you hear a note that's supposed to be, all of a sudden, one of the instruments is like, you know. Oh, yeah. We know about it in the New West Guitar Group. We have to, our, our most important pedal is our tuner on our pedal board, <laughs> you know, but, um, yeah, I mean, just uh, the, again, back to your sound too, John, like it's, it's so modern and hip because this is before Kenny Burrell. This is before, I mean, Kenny was starting to record for blue note. He had recorded for chess, but, uh, yeah. West before yeah. Wes, um, and then we get into the sixties and I know you've, you're, you've met at this point mid-60s Joe Pass, but you're doing a lot of session work for film and television. I'm just curious, were you balancing being on the road with Chico and then coming back and doing sessions, or did the touring with Chico end? I I, I left, uh, I was only with Chico for two years, Mm -hmm. and and, uh, then I settled in L.A., and uh, I wanted to start a college someplace, and I went to, to City College, here, and I, I studied for a couple of years uh, 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 
-hmm. the professor uh, uh, Leonard Stein. Yeah, Leonard Leonard Stein. He was a, a Schoenberg protege. You know, he uh, he proofread Schoenberg's music and worked with him. And but he was he was the guy was a genius, and he was like music was. Uh, was real important to him. I mean, I, I remember he was, and he wasn't easy uh, as far as if he did an assignment. I mean, I seen he would like in the morning, uh, we, everybody would have their home, and you know, and he'd walk by and and he would look at something that was very mediocre, and and he would actually get angry. And I I see I, I remember him going over to the desk and this this one guy and he's. And he looked at it, and he immediately started, no, 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 no. And he kept scribbling all over, you know. He, <laughs> music, was, you know, music was important to him, you know. You know, he didn't take it lightly. Composers, but, uh, are, composers can be like that, man. Taking all of his courses, even his music history class, because he was a, a just a, a great teacher. Right. So I, you know, that's how I got most of my uh, classical training, I mean. Uh, you know, and and writing, doing little like string quartets and writing out stuff. And that must have given you a lot of great skills for the studio too, because by then you were recording on, and I mean, TV is in its boom in the United States. ABC, NBC, CBS were in full blown. So you were probably on TV sessions every day. And then you were, sounds like you were inspired to write your own music and you were still playing a lot of jazz guitar. I'm just curious. Would you... Working every every. Every evening, you're working a gig here. Would be uh, I was working with Paige Cavanaugh like five, five, six nights a week. You know, you'd go into a place and you'd work there for two months. You know, <laughs> and those are those were uh, the good days where you had a chance to play a lot and then do sessions. There was so much, uh, uh, and, and, you know, if you were a guitar player in town uh, in those days, you know, if you weren't working, you 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 had to be really bad because it was so, you know, they, uh, I remember one time it came like a, it was, is a joke that Tommy Garrett, 50 guitars. We did an album that was actually 50 guitars. And, and, you know, Lorendo yeah. was on a playing lead at that time. And, and, but they had different sections. They had like uh, nylon string and then like some odd instruments, all stringed instruments. And so there were actually first the first date they did, they actually had fifty guitar players. And if you weren't called on that, it was a joke, you know. Thanks again for joining us for another exciting edition of High Action. We'd like to take this moment to thank our sponsors for making this podcast possible, especially those who follow us on Patreon. If you'd like to join us, visit us at www.patreon.com slash Group. There you can subscribe monthly to our Patreon page and get exclusive content from today's podcast. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts for all the future episodes. Once again, I'm John Story with New West Guitar Group, and thanks for joining us on High Action.